Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact regarding our last episode on the realities of direct provision here in Ireland today. You can still listen back to our podcast on Newstalk.com or also on the Go Loud app. And as always, you can get in contact with us today by emailing between the lines at Newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up today, this week on News Talk, as part of our uh, Christmas special, we want you to rethink your drink with Drink Aware. And we're going to be focusing on all aspects of drinking culture in Ireland today. Joining me in studio to kick off the programme is the CEO of Drink Aware, Sheena Horgan. Sheena, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. First of all, Sheena, Drink Aware, what do you do? We're a national charity, um, so we're based all around the country, basically. Um, our main motivation, our main mission objective is to prevent and reduce the misuse of alcohol. And included in that is tackling underage drinking. So there's three real strands to what we do. The first is around education. The second is around research. So we invest a lot in research to understand the attitudes and behaviours in order to shift the dial that we're looking for. And the third is around outreach and engagement. So we do a huge amount on social and digital and also face to face. So that's everything from the ploughing and the Tullamore show to social engagement. And we have on our website 1.5 million page views this year alone. So we have a huge number of visitors who go onto the website, use the calculator, try and get more information, facts, tips and details. And we have a parent's help on that as well, which is hugely popular. So it's all about outreach, engagement and education. Mm-hmm. You're um, a charity, you mentioned. It, yeah. you funding. There's funding as well, though, from the drinks industry, is that right? Oh, it's predominantly from the drinks industry. But the important thing to note is while we're funded by, we're not run by the drinks industry. So we have an independent board, an independent executive structure. And the charity status reflects that because you have to go through, you have to prove your charitable purpose, if you like. And that charitable purpose is a public health benefit purpose. And for people that might say that perhaps maybe criticism that the the Drink Aware organisation faced, just maybe in the sense that um, obviously if you're funded by the drinks industry, how do you hold that separation, I suppose, of independence between the two? Well, our our agreements are very much arm's length agreements. So the funding comes in, but it is spent according to the executive and the board and what we decide to do. I would urge anyone to just look at the website, look at the content, look at the materials, and you'll see we very much speak from that charity space and from that charitable purpose. We're always thinking of the citizen, the public, the consumer. In Ireland today, 2019, as we're heading into 2020, um, Sheena, what's our drinking culture like here in Ireland? Because we still sort of have this image, certainly um, worldwide, as being a nation of drinkers. Well, we do, and we we certainly live up to that. Now, depending on which data you look at, you'll see some figures that say that our consumption is dropping, but there's other areas certainly where we're still drinking. So to give you an idea, we have about 44% of the adult population drinks on a weekly basis. So there's a prevalence of just general consumption. But the more difficult area, the more problematic area, is the binge drinking culture that we have, which is very much in existence. So we would have from our Drink Aware Index about 20%, so about a fifth of the drinking population drink to excess. So that's six or seven drinks, standard drinks or more on a typical drinking occasion. So it's the nature of how we drink that is difficult. But the area that kind of worries me most and I know most listeners would also be concerned about is the age of the first drink on average is 15 and a half years. But actually for some categories, it drops down as low as 13 and a half. And that is 
hugely problematic. So that's part of the culture okay. that we have. You just want to clarify, the excessive drinking, is that six to seven drinks at any given event or on a weekly basis? No, that's six to seven on one drinking occasion. And the difficulty here is that we know from the index there's only about 2% of the population who know what a standard drink is or what the weekly mm. guidelines well, are. Yeah, that, that's. I just wanted to, to clarify. So, but if you're somebody who maybe goes to a wedding in January and maybe yeah. do something else in March, I mean, are you telling me that person's the excessive drinker for having six or seven well, drinks on that one day. These are where the standards come from is the World Health Organization. So it's not even from the HSE Department of Health. These are World Health Organization figures. So they look at the grams of alcohol content and then each market sets a level, if you like, and what the weekly guidelines are. So what's deemed to be problematic drinking is either exceeding the weekly guidelines, which is 11 standard drinks across the week for a woman or 17 for a man, or binge drinking, which is the one occasion. So having six or more standard drinks which is three pints. So it's that on one sitting on one occasion is classed as heavy episodic or binge drinking. Which I, I know is what it, it yeah, kind of grates with I, people I, for sure. Yeah, and certainly I know when we when we talk about this, typically people will often reference other European countries, and they might talk about maybe, for instance, Germany or France, where um, people and, and particularly young people they drink in maybe a supervised fashion uh, with their parents, and they maybe have one drink or one beer or one small glass of wine, and and yeah, probably a lot of people listening to this today will maybe begin to realise that actually they fall into the excessive drinking category and yeah. they might drink once every three months. No, absolutely. It's it's kind of, it's, it's a very difficult one and it's a very nuanced one. And what we tend to, we look at alcohol and think it's black and white. So we either have a serious problem with alcohol or we don't drink. And we have a quarter of the population who don't drink as well. And that's been fairly consistent, which is important to flag as well. So it's all the grey area in between. It's the nature of how we drink and when we drink, particularly at occasions like this coming up to Christmas, Mm. when there's loads of social occasions, family work and otherwise parties. parties. Completely. So we're looking at, we're urging people to just think about, you know, plan your night out, plan your night ahead and think about what you're consuming. And there's a whole load of tips and advice that's given. And I, I know there's some tips that are airing kind of throughout the week on on News Talk as well, which is really helpful. So it's trying to cut back or cut down. So just to be clear, we have the the binge drinker, we have the excessive drinker, and then we have a quarter of the population in Ireland who don't drink at all. Yeah, and important to point, that quarter of the population, they're not necessarily people who had an issue with alcohol. There's a lot of people and an increasing number, especially amongst the younger generation coming up, that choose not to drink. Mm for, you know, health and wellness reasons and yeah. a, a multitude of others. It's important we kind of say that so we can feel like we can make that normal well, if we choose to. Yeah, it's interesting because I was just looking at stats recently um, regarding young people and certainly, and look, I know there's there's a whole variety of different figures you can look at, but the figures that I have been looking at would indicate that the the teenagers of today, your, thir- your 15, 16 year olds, are not consuming as much alcohol as perhaps my generation, which is the early to mid-30s and the generations, mm. at, you know, before me. So why is that? Well, you see, the funny thing, as I say at the outset, data and stats and research can show you different things. So the piece of research I think you're talking about <clears throat> looks at 15 to 16-year-olds mm. who had a drink in the last 30 days. So it depends on whether you ask the question, is it the last 30 days? Is it the last year? Is it on a regular basis? So certainly I would always go back to that piece of when's the first drink being consumed and how prevalent is that going forward? And that to me is the worrying one. So on one hand, with one set of data, 
our teens are drinking slightly less, but on another hand, they absolutely aren't. So it really depends on what it is you're trying to look at. But the the other thing to say is that we have an alcohol education programme that goes into junior cycle students. And when we talk to teachers, so we did our research at the beginning before we launched the programme, mm. and teachers would very much say that there is an issue. They're the ones there at the coalface and that there needs to be more education to that younger generation. But also it's about primary prevention. So it's trying to delay as much as possible that first drink because we know all the data will suggest that having a drink at 15 or having a drink at 20 there is a big difference in terms of brain development and impacts later on so you are four times a child having a drink at 15 versus 20 is four times more likely to have a negative relationship with alcohol going forward into later life so I I completely empathise with parents who who talk the supervised conditions talk and it shows the nature of the I suppose the societal norm that we have with regards to alcohol so I completely empathise with the logic that's there but unfortunately the data and the evidence just doesn't support it and so as much as we can do to delay that first drink is a good thing. What do you mean by supervised conditions that talk with parents? I, I think one of the myths that would be very much out there is and you, you kind of referenced it slightly earlier is for a parent to give a child a drink under the age of 18 in the home setting. So it's in the home, parents are here. So surely that, and it's a question will be asked a lot, surely that is a safer environment, a supervised Mm. environment, rather than the child, you know, having alcohol outside of the home. And intuitively, I get completely where that's coming from. But unfortunately, as I say, the evidence doesn't support that. And in the sense that the child, if the child has been allowed to have a drink, maybe one drink, on their 16th birthday for New Year's Eve or whatever it is in a supervised setting versus drinking a bottle of something down an alleyway. Yeah. That's actually the child who has the supervised drink is worse off. No, not not necessarily worse off, but it's just saying that it's still not a good thing. So it may feel like I'm going to circumvent problems later if I allow my child to drink under supervision. But actually, that's not necessarily the case. They may still develop a problem later on. So that's why the recommendation is absolutely just no alcohol mm. before 18. OK, um, it's interesting when you see people's relationship with drink. And I know even from, you know, um, when I look at myself and my own demographic and my own friends and, and other kind of cohorts as well, there is that drinking culture that can often emerge in the latter end of, of school. Um, it spikes probably in college in the yeah. formative stages of maybe your your working career and starts to drop off again like there you know there's the the, the yeah. cycle kind of detours a little bit is that absolutely well the the drinkware index from 2019 would reflect that so if we look at under 24 year olds and under 34 year olds that there is certainly there is more drinking going on there than there is in later years arguably there's probably a piece around getting closer to the 30s, maybe it's settling down, maybe it's work, maybe it's family and everything else. There's so many other lifestyle things that can come into it. But certainly up until that under 24, 25, 26 year old age group, that there is a lot of heavy drinking happening. How do you feel our relationship or what do you feel our relationship is with drink in the sense that, I mean, is it that there's a lot of underlying issues that we seem to have Mm. this problem with drink? Like, why do we drink so much more in Ireland versus other countries? Well, when we ask people why they drink, because it's, it's a big question. So why is it? So we had 84% saying social reasons and we're very sociable 
a race. We're a very sociable kind of country and society. So there's social aspect to it. But two of the other high figures that came in were around conforming and coping. So to that point, the coping piece is about trying to manage the stresses of everyday life. And there's a huge amount of data and information and conversation being had around mental health and the stresses that we're under. So the coping piece is there. But the conforming piece, I think, is very interesting. Yeah, what well, do you mean by that? That's about not feeling left out, to be part of the crowd, the group and not to be left out. And interestingly, adults will say that as much as children and young people do. So it's about that conforming thing, which is those social occasions, which is why we come back to if we have a social norm, which is we're going out so there will be alcohol involved. There's a, a communion, a confirmation, a christening, commiserations, like alcohol seems to form a part of those occasions. And we need to change that setting. We need to change that norm. We need to make it OK for people to say, no, not drinking tonight, thanks. No, I'm driving. No, I'll just have a water. So we need to make that acceptability piece, which I think we can do and we are doing and we're certainly capable of it. Um, so it's shifting that norm. H- has there been a shift? that you've recognised? Do you know, I think there definitely has. I mean, I've been in this role for over 12 months and when we look at our stats over that time, there's certainly been a huge amount of engagement in terms of the online space. As I say, there's, you know, half a million visits to the website. So that's increasing all the time. We have a quarter of a million uses of the online calculator. So that's somebody going on to drinkaware.ie, looking at how many drinks have I had over what period of time? What's the calorie content of that? How many standard drinks is that? And people seeking information. So it's the desire and the interest for information is the first step, an important step. And also the likes of the ploughing is a good example because we had about 8,000 conversations with people face to face. And the nature of the conversations we're having, I think, are quite instructive and and quite insightful. I wonder... um because of the the connection and, and I suppose maybe the recent changes that we've had in our drink driving laws to um, the, the fact that people are probably very conscious now and are making a huge Absolutely. concerted yeah. effort not not to you know not to drink and drive and then not to drive the following day. I, I wonder is that interest though in you know looking at how many units am I having, how many calories of alcohol am I having? Is that more around, I don't want to get caught the next morning, I need to calculate how many hours I can't? Do you know, with the, absolutely. Or does it matter? Like? Absolutely. Well, there's a whole load of different reasons why why people kind of are looking to figure out what they're doing. No less than when we have the calculator, we look at alcohol content, but we'll also look at calories and sugar. So a lot of for a lot of people, they look and go, there's over 500 calories in a bottle of wine. OK, hang on. There's how many in a pint? OK. The motivations and the triggers and the touch points may be varied. Yeah. But, you know, that's and OK. And it's irrelevant, probably. That's really. OK. Well, you're trying to bring people on a on a journey, on a path. We're trying to encourage people to behave in a, in a different way, in a positive way. So if the motivator is one of several things, that's OK. But the drink driving one is interesting because that would certainly our information on the website. That will be one of our top three page site visits consistently over the last 12 months. So people, as you say, are definitely concerned, interested and want to do the right thing. Yeah, And obviously, I mean, between the changes in the drink driving laws and the fact that we are becoming a much more health conscious, well-being focused nation, definitely. there's yep. probably a, a marriage of all all three elements in that. There is. I mean, there's a whole load of kind of trends emerging, if you like. There's also products on the market which are non and low alcohol products, which are you know, decent, credible products. And certainly in terms of the shift there, that is helping this as well. We also have the likes of the Virgin Mary pub opening, which would not have happened five, ten years ago. So you have an alcohol-free bar there. So there's a whole load of different things, I think, that have collided and merged. Certainly the health and wellness trend is one that 
is not abating and will just keep going. Yeah. And that certainly feeds into this. I'm interested in the idea of the um, or in the the coping reason that that was been that has been given to you, um, Sheena, because mm-hmm. one of the things that we often hear from people, particularly elderly sections of rural Ireland, is that they find the pub and rural isolation, you know, is that often going to the pub can be a great cure for rural isolation. Yep. And whether or not somebody is drinking or not, you, you know, the, the, there is still the the opportunity for conversation and meeting people Absolutely. that goes with with um with the Irish country pub, but. The, that comforting coping element of it, like how, how do we address that? Is that just a generational thing? Oh, it, it, you know, it's a very good question. <clears throat> I think comforting and coping are arguably two slightly different things, you know, coping and to deal with the stresses. I mean, that's, I suppose, how our question was worded. The comforting piece is slightly different. The rural argument or the rural issue is a very interesting one because certainly there is a rural pubs are part of a community for sure. But what we'd also find, though, is there's a huge amount of drinking occasions that are happening in the home setting. So they're not necessarily in the pub setting. Mm. And that is another trend that is exploding. So the 61% of drinking occasions are happening in the home, which is a phenomenal stat when you think about it. And that is problematic in a sense of there can be unintended overconsumption there because you can free pour and everything else Yeah, goes it's funny. That. I was going to ask you about that because all cards on the table, I, I come from a, a publican background. So I'm acutely aware of the change in trends that have obviously developed yeah. down, down through the years. And one of the things you'd notice is that as drink prices started to rise, more and more people stayed out of the pub and would drink at home. And the knock-on effect of that is free pouring where you don't have... Yep the managed, responsible drinking of alcohol where, you know, a good publican would say, Sheena or Andrea, you've had too much, you're not getting any more and send you home. Whereas if you're at home, there's nobody saying, hang on a second, Andrea, you've had too much. Absolutely. And the free pouring, as you say, it's free pouring without measures or it's constantly topping up or it's these beautiful, big, massive bowls of glasses which are you know wine you you don't have wine in a small little glass personally I'll use almost a a, a water glass at home so I can feel like I'm on the continent so it's a small <laughs> glass and I you know it's, it's, like, it's like eating with small plates uh, yeah absolutely but the the at home piece is it's a trend that I would have thought was coming from the last say 10 years coming out of or going into recession coming out of recession others within the industry would argue it's actually been coming a long time before then, um, back to the early noughties type of thing. But but either way, it's one that's here to stay. I mean, when you look at the number of kind of off licences that are opening and pubs that are closing. So it's clearly an important trend, <clears throat> excuse me, and one that we're looking, we're actually, because it flat was flagged in the index, we're looking at more data into it to better understand it. But there's a lot of kind of tips and tricks that you can have for entertaining at home. And it's like stocking up on the, the low and non-alcs. It's like still drinking your water in between. It's like using a measure. Mm. And we have resources on the website, which are free. So you can go to drinkaware.ie and you can order a measuring cup, which will actually say what the weekly guidelines are. And we'll have measures on it for spirit and wine and beer to help you stay within those guidelines. What's your view, um, Drinkaware's view, on those, you know, uh, low alcohol, no alcohol content, you know, mm. uh, drinks that are out there at the moment? Because there's there's more and more of them on the, on the shelves. Well, I, th- it, I think I suppose it's giving people options and the alternative piece, the alternative question is when we're asked, 
all the time. So when we're talking to young people or we're talking to teachers, they're saying, what are the alternatives for kids if they're not going Mm. out or socialising? You know, what can they do? For adults, it's the same thing. So if you go out of a Saturday night with a group of people and you want to feel like you're part of that, what are the alternatives that you can have? I mean, maybe there's only so much. Your point about conforming. Absolutely. So if you want to be in the pub and you want to feel like you're having the pint and feel like you're in the middle of the crack, there is, I suppose, an alternative out there now that you can, if if conforming is the problem, there is. Absolutely. And, you know, so it's the more, I suppose, the more choice and options and alternatives that are there, the better. And particularly when you go back to the drink driving piece, I mean, it's really, really important that people can still socialise and go out, but feel that they're still part of it and, and be able to drive safely. And we would certainly recommend never drink and drive. So having those low options um, or non-alcohol options is is really important. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about tips because there's two different things that will happen over the next number of days. Mm-hmm. And that is, as you mentioned, going out and staying at home, <laughs> both of which in many cases for people and they see yep. Christmas as, you know what, I don't drink all year. I might have my couple of drinks. But then, as you say, now they're the excessive drinker because they've had six or seven yep. on the one night um, one given night but look for people that maybe you know this year are just going to say Sheena I, I'm i going to enjoy myself at Christmas but I do want to cut back or be a little bit more responsible or less is more or whatever their, their reasons sure. are um, for people going out what's your just kind of tips that they can still enjoy themselves okay. but so maybe it's a change for people going out I mean going out or at home I'd always say plan think about it beforehand and think okay I'm going out I'm going out for a certain number of hours I only want to have two, three drinks, whatever it is. Like think about it beforehand. So that's always worth doing. So when you're actually out, I'd urge don't get involved in rounds. That way you're drinking at your own pace, not somebody else's. Um, yeah, that's good even, advice because you can get... Oh, completely. Yeah. And, and Sometimes if you end up buying it, a round and you're not even finished yeah, your drink. Yeah. You know. At least, I suppose, if it's your round, you can buy everyone else a drink and not yourself if that's what you'd like. But there's also the element of you're trying to be, we're in this together. So if you stay out of rounds, then that kind of makes it simpler. So you're drinking at your own pace. You could downsize. So have a bottle instead of a pint, have a glass instead of a pint, have a small glass of wine or whatever, instead of a larger glass of wine. There's a lot of pubs and hotels yeah, that will offer of kind of the two. Avoid top-ups. So if you're in a restaurant, I, I have a habit of having my hand over my glass if I'm in a restaurant, if I have a glass of wine, because we can have waiters who are brilliant at just constantly topping up or other members of the party topping up. So avoid top-ups. And then you so know finish how the much drink. you've had. Finish the drink. And then, and then right. contemplate, <laughs> contemplate whether you know, you're having another one or not. But also have water in between. And it's certainly, you know, it's really, really good to have water in between. So, I mean, those few things will certainly make a difference if you are out. If you are at home, then again, it's about planning. So if you're at home and if you're entertaining, I would absolutely urge stock up on the low and non-alcoholic alternatives. And it's, I suppose, we think at Christmas time, we want to be generous. We want to be hospitable. Well, you see, I know there's people listening to this and they're thinking, um, I don't want to be the killjoy. If I'm asking people over for dinner, I want to have drinks there and a selection drinks to offer them I, I don't want to say well because I'm not drinking or I'm cutting back yeah. this year now as a knock-on effect Sheena you are you know so absolutely but then you have the selection if you have a selection then you have the alternatives in there as well so it's like you know are you driving are you having a drink would you like a do you want a beer actually I have a no alcohol or low alcohol beer if you'd like one of those instead it's a you know giving yeah, people okay. the option and I suppose what we're trying to do is normalise it as opposed to be the killjoy and everyone always thinks it's kind of either or yeah. there's this grey area in between and that's the area where change can actually happen so we know nobody likes 
um, well, a lot of people like change, but they don't like being changed. So nobody likes to be force fed the changes. So that's why having the option there okay. is, is, I think, so you're, very you're good. not forcing people into doing it, but not at, not at all, Sherry. It's a, I, I, I have a large family. We entertain at home. I know exactly what you mean. And probably if you're sitting at a dinner table and everybody else has conformed to, you know, yeah. the new Andrea Gilligan, then all of a sudden yeah. maybe everybody else around the table might yeah. think about doing the same. Well, do you know when you you say that? I mean, it it brings a, a really really important point going into Christmas and especially the at home entertaining is to be mindful around the kids in the house. So there's a lot of family events and kids are sponges and we are laying down their expectations going forward. So if they see us, you know, having a great time with a glass of wine as opposed to being a bit messy with more than that consumed, you know, that's the message that they're taking. So I think that role modelling piece is important as well. So you can have, you can have a knock-on effect on your friends and family, but also on the younger people around you. And, And we know that, Children get, you know, 27% of first drinks are provided by parents or family members. So that's why these occasions are are those classic events when children are exposed to alcohol. And we need to be conscious of that. Lots of, um, I think, very measured advice there for people to take on board over the Christmas period. My thanks to the CEO of Drink Aware, Sheena Horgan, for joining us in studio. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. Today we are discussing rethinking your drinking. That's a part of a series that we're running here on News Talk all over the Christmas period. Joining us in studio, my next guest today is Dr. Ollie Bartlett from Maynooth University Law Department. Ollie specialises specifically in public health law. Ollie, we've been talking earlier today about tips and advice and various different mechanisms that people can use or adopt in terms of trying to maybe rethink their drinking over the Christmas period. But just from a public policy, from a legal perspective as well, um, what is our legal framework here in Ireland like in, in terms of the alcohol offering and, and how it's governed in this country? Sure. Well, thanks very much, uh, Andrea. First of all, it's, uh, it's great to be here. So the government recently introduced a piece of legislation called the Public Health Alcohol Act. It's been in the making for uh, roughly two years before it got passed, uh, back when Taoiseach Clare Varadkar was uh, the health minister. And this is the first, indeed, one of the first pieces of comprehensive alcohol legislation in Europe. And certainly the first time that Ireland has attempted to put in place comprehensive legal framework to, to govern the regulation of alcohol. And I think that was something that uh, Simon Harris was was quite pleased with. And the, the bill generally lays out sort of four or five broad categories of, mm. of Just remind of us measure. of those categories, Ali. So there are measures controlling the, the advertising of alcohol. There are measures controlling pricing, so uh, introduction of a minimum unit price for alcohol. There are measures concerning the, the, the physical availability, like how, how alcohol is, is sold physically, and also measures uh, on the labelling of alcohol. So there was a very, very contentious element of it, which is this cancer warning label uh, element, sort of similar warning labels that you'd see uh, going mm. on tobacco packs. Yeah. A lot of the debate as to whether that should be in or out ends up being in. So that is now part of the, the legislative yeah. scheme. So as I said, it's it's this first, first comprehensive attempt at putting in place a broad spectrum of, of regulation to try and and regulate alcohol for the benefit of public health. Okay, and and it's interesting because when you hear it laid out like that, it certainly sounds like, you know, 
we have quite a few laws in place in terms of where we sell drink, how we sell drink, who we can sell drink to, what times even you can sell drink mm-hmm. up until. How does that compare to other uh, EU countries, for instance? Do we have, would we be regarded here as having light or, or, or heavy regulation? Well, I mean, certainly the the most countries regulate as as exactly you say the the sale of alcohol to to kids. Uh, you know when pubs can or cannot open, but very very few countries regulate the product itself, the production of the product, how it can be marketed. Probably the only comparable example is is France's Loi Van that they've they've had for a number of years now, which is a, a, an advertising regulation was challenged in the European courts a, a number of years ago and is still going. That's probably the only comparable thing which, mm. I, which I can think of in terms of regulation. Most other countries do put in place controls on, for instance, advertising, but a lot of these tend to be uh, what's called self-regulatory. So uh, an agency, uh, an independent agency, yeah. such as for instance, you know, uh, the Advertising Standards Authority in the UK or its equivalent here in, in Ireland will have a, a set of a set of rules, a code, which then alcohol advertisers agree to, to stick by. Um, and the whole thing is conducted on, a, on this, let's say, self-regulatory basis because the industry agree to regulate themselves. This, by comparison, is a legislative scheme, compliance with which is obviously mandatory by, by law as opposed to just compliance uh, between between the alcohol companies themselves okay so it's quite a quite a big difference and quite a big step up compared to certainly what Ireland uh, had before and what other European countries had before it's certainly the first general legislative scheme that we've seen in in Europe a bit of a trailblazer I would I would consider it okay it's interesting as well in the sense that I mean I know there have often been calls for the the legal drinking age to be increased when when you look at the level of consumption here in in this country. Sure. Um, but by comparison to other countries, we probably fall somewhere in between the likes of France and Germany and mm-hmm. and the states. Yeah, sure. I mean, some European countries set the set the age for for alcohol consumption at uh, sixteen. Uh, Spain is sixteen. Obviously, the states is is twenty one. And I think there are numerous studies that have been done on you know exactly when you know, the age of drinking should be set. But I think a lot of more attention is beginning to be focused not on the individual themselves, but on the societal structures that are in place around the consumption of alcohol, the sale of alcohol, the marketing of alcohol. A lot of the burden is disease, a burden of disease, if it's traced back, can be attributed to sort of higher level societal structures, such as, you know, the way in which companies are promoting alcohol, the way in which shops are are selling alcohol or promoting alcohol. And is that what those sort of, the the new um, measures are about really? I mean, people will know there's a lot of discussion about the fact that where alcohol can be sold with regards to um, even calls for its proximity towards things like schools or, you know, Mm, various different mm -hmm. elements like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And a lot of them are designed to, to link to... I say existing patterns of of health inequities and health inequalities, and, and that simply means noticeable difference in in how you experience health, just simply depending on you know where you were born and and how you live. And it's interesting that you mentioned the the schools example. There is quite you know, there's a lot of considerable evidence that alcohol companies aren't aren't afraid mm. of promoting alcohol to younger people and even though even though uh, you know a lot of advertising is not specifically 
directed at young people you know as per the, the existing codes it's things like you know advertising within a certain distance of schools advertising you know sponsoring sports events at which a lot of young people will attend so it's not direct targeting of, of kids in that sense but it's the sort of structural environment in which uh, young people and kids exist that normalizes a kind of heavier drinking culture mm. and that's the kind of sort of structural changes that the act is is designed to to implement there was uh, some opposition specifically as yeah. so you mentioned the advertising within schools trade bodies or organizations saying that it would be uh, you know un, unworkable to to comply with those rules but i mean suddenly from as speaking from a personal perspective there is only so much that you can do in order to try and influence the behavior of of the individual before you have to start looking at these kind of larger structural factors and, and wondering just how much really the individual and individual responsibility contributes to the alcohol growing sort mm. of alcohol problem nowadays and how much of it is due to these structural factors. What are you countries would be sort of hailed as um, the kind of the, the template for perhaps those sort of structural measures that they've introduced or implemented in an effort to try and control or, or curb the sale of alcohol, or particularly with regards to an underage? Uh, well, genuinely, I, I think this, this scheme in Ireland is amongst the, the first of its kind. Uh, most, um, most European countries, indeed, most, most countries in the world have not really attempted to put in place any kind of, any kind of legislative change to this effect. I think this is why this, is, this, this, this Public Health Alcohol Act in Ireland uh, is and should be seen as quite an interesting sort of test case in that way. Certainly, I mean, the, the Scottish minimum unit pricing policy was the first minimum unit pricing mm. policy in, in the world of, of its kind. And that obviously received a, a lot of attention, a lot of legal scrutiny, obviously. Um, and in the end, it was found to be compatible with, with European law. So in, in the field of pricing, perhaps that was a, a massive, massive first step. And like I say, other countries have... Uh, like France being sort of trying legislative measures. Yeah. But uh, genuinely, I do, I do think that this is this the first kind of of its kind. Right. And it'll be interesting to see how it kind of develops, you know. How long will it take to sort of have an assessment of perhaps any um, positive changes from the rollout of the Public Alcohol Health Bill? Ah, I mean, that's a good question. It's it's kind of hard to say. It depends on how quickly you know, observational studies can, can be performed. Just as a, you know, an example, the, the Scottish minimum pricing policy has been, is, was in the process of being evaluated and a report on alcohol consumption in Scotland post the introduction of minimum unit pricing there was was introduced roughly a year sort of after after the policy was introduced i found that uh, it was likely that minimum unit pricing did contribute to to decreasing levels of alcohol consumption in Scotland. Um, so, I mean, sort of timeframes for that sort of stuff are, are hard to predict. Yeah, I mean, evidently, okay. public health legislation is is one of those funny things that the benefits are, are never really immediately immediately obvious. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is hard sometimes to sort of, for health ministries, for, for public health advocates, to persuade people of the importance of the changes. If when, you don't have tangible figures. Yeah, yeah okay. exactly. And it, and when it's when it's kind of hard, hard to see. Yeah, exactly. If there are any immediate benefits, the can, benefits obviously take much longer to, to evaluate. Can I just ask you, Ollie, finally, the um, like, like as somebody that's 
working in the legal aspects of of um, of public health. Mm. What other measures do you think could the government here perhaps look to down the line? Maybe as other potential measures, if they were to 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 tighten, if you like, um, or to strengthen the public health alcohol bill even further. Sure. Well, I think one of the one of the perhaps missed opportunity. Maybe you call it a missed opportunity. Maybe you wouldn't. One of one of the things that is not as as um, strong in the act is this area of sports sponsorship. Um, now, there are several swathes of, of advocates who kind of rightly point to the, the growing evidence base on the influence that, that sponsorship and sports sponsorship in particular has on um, you know, liking for alcohol, desire to, to consume alcohol, particularly amongst young kids. But it's one of the few areas that I think governments are sometimes a little unwilling to touch. Like I said, France is the only country to date which has placed a kind of uh, a ban on sports sponsorship by alcohol countries. Hence why if you've ever mm. watched, you know, uh, you know, rugby or football on TV broadcast from France, there's no alcohol advertising, you know, because because that's of why. that rule. Exactly, yeah. And I think that's probably one thing which, which the government might look uh, increasingly strongly at because uh, it's one of those kind of, uh, areas of, of marketing and promotion, which is kind of o- overlooked often um, for for the power that it actually holds to influence attitudes uh, around the, the consumption of alcohol, normalizing the, the consumption of alcohol. So perhaps perhaps that is one thing which okay. which may be maybe looked at in well, the future as well. Something I'm sure we might be maybe potentially discussing at a at a future date. But my thanks yeah. to uh, Dr. Ollie Bartlett, who's um, from the law department at Maynooth University, for joining us here. Between the lines on News Talk. Well, you're welcome back to News Talks Between the Lines program with myself, Andrea Gilligan. This week on News Talk, we want you to rethink your drinking with Drink Aware. And Stephanie Regan joins us to discuss. Stephanie, we've heard from um, Sheena Horgan and also uh, Ollie Bartlett just in relation to kind of public health and policies and certainly yeah. the legal aspects of that. But just first of all, um, when you look at our drinking culture in Ireland, I mean, it's something that really hasn't changed. Would it be fair to say it's got worse in recent years? Hi, Andrea. First of all, let me just say, I think that uh, this is a really excellent programme and I think it's such a timely, you know, it's so timely and I'm sure you know that yourself. But uh, from the point of view where I come from, which is clinically listening to people, listening to the problems that emerge, looking at the Christmas parties, looking at the kinds of damage that gets done by drink. I find myself coming at it from that side. And you asked me, is it getting worse? I think, well, I think we all know the binge culture and the excessive drink, you know, the, the tendency to drink to excess even early in the evening, you know, early in the, the go out, if you like, um, has become a big issue. I mean, I I find even, you know, our cultural kind of thing, we all know about that people are, we have this sort of uh, association with all fun is, you know, always with drink. And I find even myself before I speak, you almost have to put in the proviso, you know, I'm not a party pooper, but you nearly you have know. to explain yourself. Yes, you nearly have to explain yourself. And the thing is, is that right? We need to check that. I mean, the reality is we know that drink not only causes all those sort of damages in terms of relationships, excess of drink, 
right? So we do need to moderate and we do need to be straight about it. We're straight about food, obesity. Mm. We put all these things out there about being mindful about your food, mindful about your mental health. We need to be mindful about drinking because there is a lot of emotional drinking. Of course, there's patterned drinking, but there's also a lot of emotional drinking. You people who are shy drink a little more. We know it, it disinhibits. Yeah. We know it makes you feel well. And is that what it is for a lot of people? I mean, I know obviously you work in this yeah. field and yeah. without going into the finer sure. details of what you hear in the in, in yes. the uh, in your clinical room, but is it that sort of is there an air of confidence that people get from it? Is that oh, absolutely. I mean, drink. Uh, there's a, there's um, a very a very good book that is out. Uh, uh, why we drink and. Um, it's all about just the science of drink and just the, what it does to the body. And I think that's something that we need to become more clear about, you know, that there is an anaesthetic component to it. You know, you are really, you know, numbing, numbing your body, numbing your senses and numbing your thinking. So the physical effect is very and it gives you that initial lift and certainly people who are unconfident in what I see in my work is that people will knock in the drink before they go out they get that buzz and they they feel the you know the benefit of it now the thing is if you're confident and you're fine in yourself and you feel comfortable going out that's fine but if you are struggling like lots of people are mm-hmm. struggling in, with their confidence and with their with shyness maybe you know other people are very um, inhibited it's not just confidence they're just they're just not uh, comfortable around people i deal with a lot of people who are have social phobia and you know these are these are difficult things to manage and it's very easy to get lost out there in the drink. That's really what I'm saying. What do you say to somebody maybe who's listening today, Stephanie, that maybe has a partner who would be out maybe over the Christmas period? There's obviously work nights, there's nights out with the friends, whether they be male or female, and they, maybe they can go back to their, their old ways. So there's an, you know, kind of an element of escapism maybe that comes with the, the Christmas nights out and you kind yes. of have the excuse because sure, I'm never out. It's Christmas and meeting up with the friends. They're home from whatever, Australia, yes. whatever the case is. There's no end of opportunities. Yeah. Yes. Well, I know um, you, you may be referring there slightly to, I wrote a piece there for The Independent a little bit ago yeah. about sober chaperones at Christmas parties because a, a number of companies in the UK um, had had lots of, lots of difficulties, accountancy companies, had had lots of difficulties with scandals after the Christmas party and they decided that they would instead assign two staff members uh, to be remain sober and to ensure that everybody got home safely. Like but that's an awful onus, is it not, to put on the two staff members? How do you pick? Well, exactly. It is. It's an onus, I agree. But the reality is, it's is it necessary? That, you know, and they obviously, this is a very large organisation, mm. and they came to the conclusion that it was necessary because there is risk. Because, and the risk is that people aren't getting home safely. That there are all sorts of um, awkward Uh, passes and awkward advances made, awkward displays of um, like and dislike of other, you know, Mm -hmm. staff members and managers. And as I say, people being honest uh, in inverted commas, Uh, people who decide they're going to tell you, Andrea, you know, this is what I really think. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, we work together all year. But you know what? You know what I really think? Yeah. No, we don't want to know what you really think. But at parties, people tend to feel that's good conversation. And, you know, that we're really being buddies now. And we're mm. down, you know, down and equal, and it's wrong. So the sober shopper own thing, I think, arises from that. And I know I've spoken a little bit about the the party because I think it's it is a time, as you say, where there is a lot of excuse for letting a lot 
out that isn't always out during the year. A lot of heavy drinking, a lot of saying things that you do that shouldn't be said and perhaps making advances at peop- to people who you fancy. Now, I talked to one C- uh, CEO guy, um, in fact, a few in the last few days, and this guy said to me, he said, uh, quite simply in his company, he said, we invite family. We have a day for the children, you know, for the parents yeah. and children. Now, they're not all, obviously, and depends on your profile. But he said, we invite the partners or the spouses. And he said, it cuts out all the messing. I right. thought it was a very simple one, but it just means that there isn't Double the cost, but... <laughs> doubles the cost, Double but less as they risk. say, maybe less risk and cheap at the price. You know, so the price of the other is quite strong. I also heard a very interesting story um, from someone, again, when this, this came up, of a man who was uh, legal, actually, and was let go from his firm. It wasn't in Ireland, so we don't have to search around our minds. And um, was let go... At the Christmas party, he was dismissed from his role because he had pinched somebody, a girl, on her bottom. Right, okay. He was gone. He was gone. Yeah, so firm and he had spent five years working that back and working his career back, whereas he was at the top of his game at that point. So people take it very mm, seriously yeah, now. Okay. It's we're, we're, we're in the post-Me Too. There's none of this, you know, slapdash kind of, you know, overly friendly. It's, it's not on anymore. And drink makes that line harder to hold. What's your advice to people, I suppose, to avoid maybe coming and talking to you in the aftermath of Christmas, yes. whether they be couples or individuals or families or friends or whatever the case is, who, for whatever reason, maybe there's been a difficult year, the loss yes. of somebody in their life, job, whatever. Um, Christmas can just be a build up of all of that. Mm, that's right. Well, it can be a huge build up because I think, as I say, there's the imperative of fun and fun and family all around. And everybody has somebody that they miss really nearly everybody has somebody that they miss and I often say to people give that memory some time whether it is that you write this person a letter whether it is that you go to their grave if it's if it's a loss in uh, in that sense and you make something it's something funnily we always did in our own house for it was make a kind of wreath but make it out of the garden and you know out of pieces yeah. from your garden so you're sort of building an activity around it and then you bring that to the grave and that's a kind of a ceremony of your own you know as we say a tradition that you build the other the other thing I think is so always give time to the memory in whatever way suits you that's the one that suits me but there's lots of ways to do it writing a letter writing a note visiting somebody who was close to the person you're missing or you know having a coffee with that person so give yourself time to honour the memory and the loss that is there for you I think the other big challenges are and I know lots of people talk talk about it but we have a lot of people who are separated a lot of people who have you know blended families a mix of situations those situations there's always somebody a little lonely somebody a little bit more going ahead with their life you know people aren't all at the very same point and we have a lot of complications and I always think it's worth realising that Christmas needs to change don't if your family is changing if your life is changing Christmas needs to change too so don't try and make it exactly like it was so that the gap Mm. is there try and let it change a little bit maybe this year it's better to do you know instead of everything being in your house maybe for you to do it in a daughter's house or maybe you know vice versa It's, it's just to let it grow rather rather than try and always keep it fixed. You can keep the food the same, but you don't have to keep the, the configuration the same. And for people then that during maybe that period in that vacuum, Stephanie, are leaning towards the bottle and they're relying on alcohol to get them through that period for whatever the reason is, yes. Like, yes. What, what do you say to them? Well, drink will make it worse, for sure. 
I mean, it, it loosens your emotions, it, it disinhibits you, and it lets all of that emotion through. So it is not going to make it easier for you. And not only do you have the initial lift, which you feel is giving you some relief because that anesthetizing mm-hmm. kind of effect. But we then have in the withdrawal phase, you have a lowering of mood. So it, the depressant is there for the withdrawal phase. So people who have any depression hanging about, you know, lurking in their system for real reasons, as you say, for sadnesses mm-hmm. or whatever. If you lean on that bottle, you are going to find yourself twice as your mood, twice as low when you move out of the drinking phase. And I often say to people, try and make a plan. Try and try and agree with yourself what, what is suitable? What is reasonable? Right. I think the great tricks are always something I learned myself years ago and I'm not a perfect person. I make mistakes like everyone else. But um, when we're sad, we can all, you know, do a little, you know, take a little more or whatever, but it doesn't really help. But I think a drink and followed by, you know, a soft drink. Try and try and intersperse, try and be it water or soft drinks or whatever. The other thing is, I think, provide for yourself with some interesting non-alcoholic drinks. You know, make them, get them, have them in. So it's not mm. only the wine. I think you can get lots of lovely, you know, non-alcoholic fizzies, non-alcoholic yeah, beers. Yeah. Have them there as a, as a, a for your, well, only, not only for you, but for guests. I think it's, we need to really start encouraging it. I notice it a lot among young people that they are going through I, I meet a lot of young people at the moment who are just going off drink. I think they've kind of sickened themselves with drink, almost like they've um, overdone it and they're really realising that it blunts their thinking and slows them up physically. And they are going off drink, not just the November thing. They're giving it up. Yeah. I find that quite interesting. Right, yeah. And I think we might be at the beginning of a phase where people are becoming, it's a bit like the obesity. I mean, I always think of it, you know, would you would you sit down and eat carbs Add infinitum never considering how it's affecting you you know just eating 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 you know anything you like anytime you like as much as you like Mm. well we all know the effect of that and so becoming a bit mindful of just what you're putting into your glass I think is really important the strength of it the size of it the measure of it and making sure you're hydrating up I just they're the kind of the golden rules and have a little plan and see if you can keep to it because I always think that um uh, self-control, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in the old sense, it actually is something you have to practice. And saying no now and again is very important. OK, good, solid, sound advice there from Stephanie O'Regan, clinical psychotherapist. My thanks to you for joining us here on the programme today. Thank I'm afraid you, that's all we have time for today. If you've missed any of the programme, you can listen back on our podcast in the Go Loud app or also on our website at newstalk.com. My thanks to the production team, Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan. I'll be back with Breakfast Briefing again on Monday morning from six and with Between the Lines this time next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day. 